Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined in studio today, as I always am, by President Wyatt. Hi, Scott. Hello, Steve. It's nice to be here with you today. Another great day. Beautiful June day as we're recording this. And um, uh, you and I actually met last night in Salt Lake City for a really nice event. Um, the university was recognized. To, um, it, I think this is worth mentioning. I, I think it's good that we're both still away because yeah. it was a late night. <laughs> it was a late night. Um, yeah, Best of State. Uh, SUU took home three Best of State awards, uh, including um, Best Educational Institution Award. It's kind of a second year in a row, actually. Two years running. Out of all the educational institutions in Utah, that's public, private, higher ed. That's public great. Ed. That's great. Um, Next year we go for a three-peat. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Anyway, it was a very nice evening, and uh, um, we don't toot our own horn too much on this podcast, but I figured that was worth bringing up. So today is um, our second book in our summer book club, and it's actually not just a book, but it's a play. And probably maybe Shakespeare's most famous player, certainly amongst those yeah and it's it um if it's shakespeare's most uh significant play uh we can probably take that a step further and say it's the most significant play um but before we defend that statement um let's bring in our guest so joyce tarantino from our english department literature professor is here with us today hi thank you glad to be here um Joy's graduate studies focus, um, you had a few areas of focus, and Mm -hmm. one was early English literature. Early modern literature is what they call it, which is the the language of that period. So that's Shakespeare, and and Mm -hmm. what were your other areas? Uh, Dystopian literature and composition, which is the classes that we teach the 1010 and 2010 to make proper argumentative writing. Yeah, it helps students be successful in written communication Mm -hmm. skills. Um, Well, before we get into this play, I I think we ought to defend the statement that this might be the most important play ever. And um, I don't know how you defend that, but I can say this much, that no play has ever been produced on Broadway more times than Hamlet. Hamlet has been produced by far more than any other play. Really? So if it, um, if that's a measure, that, and I think that's probably a pretty good indication, this could be our most important play ever. It could be. I'd have to give that more thought. But it's definitely not the, not the most important play. I mean, it's definitely up there if it's not the most important play. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, somebody somewhere on a podcast someplace in the world today is making an argument that some other play is the most important. <laughs> We're talking about Hamlet uh, in this summer book club because SUU um, has a very special Hamlet summer. The Utah Shakespeare Festival, which is part of Southern Utah University, our professional theater department, separate from our academic theater department, but the Utah Shakespeare Festival is doing a um, creative, slightly new take on Hamlet, and it opens in Cedar City on July 5th at 2 o'clock. Really? And I have my tickets purchased and I'm ready to go watch it. I don't want to be a spoiler, so I'm not going to say. But it's different. But it's just a little yeah. bit different. And I'm excited about it. It's going to be really neat. Yeah, I think I can say this um, without going too far. Um, Ophelia has a slightly larger role. That's enough to make me go. Yeah. They haven't changed any words. So the words are the same. Yeah, we... These plays, you know, everybody puts on these plays, but the way the, the way the director sets it up, and uh, the emphasis and the language and how they do things and how they're looking, you can have one play that has kind of a different meaning just by presenting it differently, and this will have a meaning that um, I don't know that anybody's ever tried doing. I've never heard of it. Um, so everybody needs to come and watch it. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. And read I, the play before you come watch it, of course. Yes. I, I, I was going to say, I'm glad they're not changing the words or updating them or excising them in any way. Because as I read this again, I, I, I'd read it once before in high school or college a long time ago. And then had seen the play a couple of times and read it again this last week. I'm just astonished. Every single time, I'm astonished at how much of Hamlet is in our <laughs> in our regular language. I mean, if anybody stumbles across across a skull, what's the first <laughs> thing you say? Alas, poor Yorick, you know. And, and it's it just there. I've never so, stumbled across. This well, skull. that's right. I'm at surprised. the Halloween with you, store, <laughs> with your background, I, I've had skulls, but I've never stumbled right. across one. But I mean, there, you know, <laughs> methinks the lady doth protest too much. I mean, how how many times have you heard that statement? Yeah, and it just it, 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 there's so many of these things that you say. That's either a proverb from the mm-hmm. Bible or it's Shakespeare, and and it you know, it's a it's a pretty good coin flip as to which has had the most impact on the on the language and this particular play especially yeah joy what are so, so for those that have never read the play or seen it mm-hmm. we're going to tell them right now that they've heard oh yeah there's quite a bit so of it. many different things but the ones that you mentioned there's to um, this above all to they know self be true which is a great uh statement yep. yeah although it's funny cuz uh the, the person who says it, Polonius, he just kind of spouts <laughs> right. off for long periods of time. But he's telling um, uh, his son all the things that he needs to be when he goes away, back to college, essentially. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. Yeah, it is a pity that um, the person making the statement is a advisor to a tyrant. 
Yeah. yeah. I don't think that necessarily was a choice on his part, though. It just <laughs> kind of, the job just kind of was fluid when the new king came in. Yeah. But there's right. also uh, so many things, just the to, to be to not, and, or not to be speech. Um, that is the question to whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings of arrows of outrageous fortune or take arms against the sea of trouble and by opposing them to die to sleep. Um, there's also um, to sleep. Perchance to dream, I there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come. Uh, for who would bear the wing whips and scorns of time? Uh, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will. So all of those are just from that monologue. But there's other things like, though this be madness, there, yet there is method in it. Right. Brevity is the soul <laughs> of wit. Um, Brevity is the soul of wit. Yep. Yeah, that one gets used a lot. Which really means uh, be short. Yeah. <laughs> it's funnier the shorter it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, great little great little lines. I probably say there's method to my madness yeah. five times a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Usually when I'm trying to convince my wife of some... Talking maybe <laughs> or another, but yes. Yeah, in this case, it was Polonius trying to figure out what is going on with Hamlet, and so he was acting mad, but there was logic to the madness, at least to Hamlet, and Polonius recognized that. <clears throat> let's let's set this play up. Um, there's about five major characters, or six. Um. Joy, can you tell us Hamlet in uh, a paragraph? The whole play? Yeah, I probably can. So, are, are we worrying about spoilers at this point? I think it's, we're past that time period where we need to worry about spoilers. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about spoilers. Okay, it's a tragedy. Shakespeare's tragedies don't end well. So, um, <laughs> uh, King Hamlet uh, is killed by his brother. Um, but nobody realizes this. But uh, King Hamlet's ghost is at the beginning of the play. Um, and asking, his brother's Claudius. Yeah, his brother's Claudius. And he's uh, will only speak to Hamlet, his son. The son comes and essentially um, he tells him to avenge him. And so, but they were also worried about the fact that the ghost might be not really his father because the devil can change the, the look and make it a, a, a positive or a pleasant one. So Hamlet acts mad for a while to try to figure out what's going on for real. Um, and uh, then he has a group of theater players come in to reenact the play. It's called Murder, Murder of Gonzago, but it, he changes enough of it that his father will recognize it. Um, in the meantime, his father, or his uncle, I'm sorry, this is a fascinating piece, isn't it? So his, it is. His uncle Claudius yes. is believed to have, we know he did, but yeah. Hamlet was told by his father's ghost, maybe, probably. Well, he marries yeah. Hamlet's mother. Yeah, and it was right after the, the father died, uh, with a couple months. In fact, that's one of the big things that Hamlet has a fuss about is the fact that they used the, the way he put it was they used the, yeah. the, the food that was still warm from the wedding or from the <laughs> funeral for the wedding. So, so Claudius kills King Hamlet mm -hmm. and then Claudius marries 
his widow, his widow yeah. Gertrude, mm-hmm. who's Hamlet's mother. Mother. The the ghost before comes, he's even cold in the ground. Yeah. yeah. The ghost comes and tells Hamlet what happened, and to avenge him, Hamlet feigns insanity to try to figure out if it's true, and goes about trying to get revenge. Yeah, so he, he has a troop come in and reenact it to see what reaction Claudius um, has, and, and the mother as well. Uh, and then there's... And it works. It does, it works. It totally <laughs> freaks the king out. Um, and then there's this whole thing where Claudius tries to kill Hamlet. He sends him away and asks Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to follow with a letter. They don't realize the letter says, oh, by the way, Norway, just kill Hamlet while he's there. But he gets away with that, which is why we have the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, um, based on <laughs> those two little big characters. I love that play so much. Um, so Hamlet comes back, um, and there's uh, these plots. So there was Laertes uh, blames well, he did. Hamlet at one point ends up inadvertently killing Polonius, think, thinking it is Claudius. Laertes finds out, and so he wants revenge, even though they were best friends and all this stuff. Um, and then Ophelia dies, and that's his sister, so he's mad about that too. And so he's going to poison Hamlet with the uh, poison on his sword when they are fencing. Um, in the meantime, there's and poison in the in wine. just in case that doesn't happen. Yes, right. Claudius the puts... Backup. Poison in the wine for him also and says, if you win, you get this pearl. It puts it in the wine. But, of course, Hamlet's not the one that drinks the wine, so we end up with almost everybody dead at the end. Yeah. it um, Not the happiest of no. endings. No. When you coat everything in poison, it, the party's going to end badly. Yeah, and almost more or less always. he's at the end just saying, tell my story to the last yeah. survivor of that group of people. So, John, why do we care about this play? Why is this play? Why has this play been done more times than any other play on Broadway? And why is it four hundred years later we're still? I am talking not about entirely it? positive. It is fascinating um, because of this whole the ideas of loyalty to family, the idea of um, corrupt government, um, or even corruption in, within one's own family. Um, and how do you deal with that? Uh, Hamlet had, you know, revenge was one of those things. So you just had a duel in that period, and that was accepted to do that. But this was complicated because it, the king was uh, head of the church, technically, uh, also. So that means that he was supposedly had the right from God to be the king. Uh, and so Hamlet didn't, wasn't sure if he had the right to kill him in that respect, but at the same time, he needed to avenge his father. And what would we do in that situation, which is, I think, the reason why we find this so interesting. And then his relationship with Ophelia gets damaged while he's because he's so busy trying to get the revenge. Um, And just uh, the reactions of the different people in the court. I think uh, it's really popular because we can it's so complicated. And so we try to insert ourselves in it and say, okay, if we were in this situation, what would we do? Right. I I even find myself thinking about Claudius, you know. I he I mean he's a good he's a good villain. He, yeah. In this, I mean, he does villainous things, no question. But but if you had recently been at war, and and if as was the history of Europe, uh, marriage and the joining of families was one of the ways that you held on to land and kingdoms and so forth. Um, 
I'm sure in his mind he could make a valid argument that this marriage needs to take place now so that there seems to be stability at the top of the government in Denmark. Yeah. And, I'm and, not sure how he justified poisoning his brother. Right. <laughs> no, as I say, he's a terrible, uh, he's a terrible psychopath. Yeah. I'm just... But I, no, they it, could totally justify yeah, that because that's what probably would if, have happened if anyway. If I'm going to do this, this would have happened anyway. Right. And, you know, uh, it, it's... Uh, yeah, I, the the um, the things that cause the people in these plays to do what they do are very interesting studies in human behavior, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's stayed around so long. Yeah, one of the most fascinating things for me personally is the way he treats Ophelia, because you get mixed messages. There's a, a love letter <laughs> that Polonius reads because he's a nosy dad and he shouldn't be reading that, but he does. Um, and sh- that professes Hamlet's love. He assumes Hamlet's just trying to seduce her, um, tells her to stay away from him, which she doesn't really want to do. And I think a lot of Ophelia's madness has to do with the fact that everybody is telling her what to do and not to do, and she has no control over her life. So then Hamlet, who was professing to love her, starts uh, attacking her, essentially, verbally. um, Get thee to another nunnery is another really famous line. And uh, I think some of that was feigned. I think some of that was the fact that he was so angry with his mother um, and the falseness of women. At that point, he was kind of making a blanket statement on all women. And yeah. so that that got put on Ophelia as well. Um, and so she gets rejected um, and she goes mad, which is just this side, little side plot that's terribly sad. Um, and then when he, she does actually die, she drowns. Uh, Hamlet feels really remorseful. He has this beautiful line. I think I actually have it written down. Uh, but it's the speech where he's like essentially saying um, how much he loved Ophelia. And he's like, a thousand brothers couldn't make up the sum of my love. So in the end, he reveals himself as, no, I really did love her. And I was acting crazy, and that's why I Yeah, and I, I think there's remorse in that, yeah. in that statement because he's just like well maybe i took this a little too far there's a as we ask ourselves you know what's the relevance of this play there's a and there's a great quote in here that we use and i've heard it a ton of times this is um claudius when he's praying my words fly up my thoughts remain below words without thoughts never to heaven go but this is a this is when he's having maybe one of those brief moments where he's actually thinking about what he's done. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so he goes through the motions, but he realizes, well, it doesn't really count because I don't I'm not feeling it. Yeah, and and he talks about how can he repent, and it's he's the king. He killed the king and took his place, married the king's widow, so now he's in charge. And, and he's struggling with repenting of this event, but, but maybe there's nothing to repent of because he got away with it. Hmm. And, and God didn't punish him. He, he got what he wanted. Well, yeah. And he's okay. <laughs> for, for now. For now. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I read a couple of monographs about... Can the king, about, can sorry, the king right. do wrong? Right. And... I mean, I remember this from, um, you know, there's a lot of heads of state 
who would say that the president or the king or whoever can really do no wrong. Right. The end always justifies the means, whatever they are. Yeah, whatever. Well, if you're <laughs> if you're in charge of the laws, then you're outside of the laws. That's right. And in America, as in most countries, we believe in the rule of law. So even the head of state is obligated to stay within it. But but I I, I think I remember the you know in the Pentagon not the not the Pentagon Papers but the um, Watergate scandal that Nixon made some comment about the president can't do anything wrong. Yeah, he was really bold about he defending cannot. himself. If I do it, it's okay. Yep. And the list of people that would have said that, you know, around the world is a long list. Over history, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's Stalin. more complicated even when there's royalty because there's this uh, anointed, anointing yeah. that physically takes place when mm-hmm. someone becomes king or queen, and they are um, representing God on earth, essentially. They have the divine right of God to rule. Right. That's right. And so that makes it seem like they won't do anything wrong, but clearly that's not what history tells us. I, I was saying I read a couple of monographs, and one of them was about uh, the Christian themes that pervade um, through Hamlet. And would, the, the writer was kind of comparing Oedipus to Hamlet, where there's this strange relationship between mother and son, and, and uh, ultimately they end up in tragedy both. Mm-hmm. But but he was saying the difference between you know the the ancient Greeks essentially believed in fate and that gods had determined your fate, and so Oedipus could do nothing about it. He was fated to, to marry his mother and pluck his eyes out and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that Hamlet uh, and Shakespeare uh, being a, a, a product of uh, the Protestant Reformation and just sort of Christianity generally, uh, it, there's, there, there is all sorts of discussion of repentance and morality and conscience and other things, and particularly personal choice. So Hamlet could at any time have stopped from doing the things that he ultimately did. He just couldn't make himself stop, couldn't keep from doing it. But it wasn't that the gods had fated that that was the case. It was that that uh, this was these were personal choices he was making out of the sin of revenge. Yeah, or, I don't actually know if he felt like he had a choice. Right. But obviously there was a choice there. But when you bring up the the ideals in Christianity, when he had an opportunity to kill Claudius, but he was Claudius was in prayer. That's right. And yeah. at the time, the belief was if you were praying, you went straight. Your soul went straight to heaven. And so not only did he want to kill him, he wanted to make sure that is not where his soul went. Right. Um, so he waited <laughs> to kill him until later. Yeah. One of the I, th- I think one of the tragic little scenes in this is after the death of Ophelia. The, the discussion of whether or not she can be buried in holy ground. That's right. Because, you know, did she kill herself? If she did, she she's not entitled to she Christian burial. That sin. Yeah, and uh, uh, so the, those themes, those those kind of Renaissance Christian themes, um, really pervade this. I thought I thought that was kind of interesting because if you if you, um, as you said, the the will to avenge your father's death was so strong I'm sure he felt as though he had no choice yeah well um, you know if your father's ghost shows up and tells you to right, do that how exactly. do you fight with that <laughs> that's right <laughs> if, if you're sure it's real <laughs> that's right no the, 
the the world is full of things uh, where someone appeared to you in a dream or sleep or a, a vision of some kind and told you to go do something and people go do it right uh, and there were other witnesses so it wasn't just him having right. this vision on his own and the it made him swear the father's ghost made him swear which is binding yep anyway i i saw i thought that was kind of an interesting take on it mm-hmm. so tell me this when hamlet brings in the other group of players mm-hmm. to um create the and you remember the title of the play murder of gonzago the murder of gonzago and then he says you know, I've changed it. It's called the mousetrap, mm-hmm. right? At at what point does it become obvious to his uncle that he is a real threat, and that and that he's going to have to be killed? Is it is it kind of throughout, or is it because I I I kept wondering because Gertrude seems not really to be involved, although there's there's a little bit of nebulousness in her relationship with right. Hamlet and she seems she seems really devoted to her new husband. Yeah. Um and I just I wonder at what point Gertrude recognizes that that her new husband is going to kill her son and I wonder at what, if it's from the very first minute of the play that the king you know he he already knows he's usurped this boy's right probably to be the king anyway. Does he know he's going to have to kill him? Or is it? I don't or is know. It I think that moment in the play where he I actually out? think it's during the play that he freaks out because earlier he talks about Hamlet being his son. He's trying to, you know, be a father figure to him, and I've never read it as Gertrude, Gertrude knowing what's going on. Right. So, I, I agree. Um, so during the play, I mean, they, they essentially act out the exact thing. So that they king. I mean the the brother of the king puts poison in the king's ear while he's sleeping, which is a habit that Hamlet's father had. He always slept in the garden. So they knew that. So at that point, I think, I don't know that Gertrude knew what was going on at that point, but I do think that Claudius was like, wait a minute, this, that's really too, too much of a coincidence. But then with the marrying the, the mother and stuff, and and eventually it dawns on Gertrude, it dawns on, Claudius, and then what are they going to do about it? Well, I mean, I don't know that she, her what are, what are we going to do about it is different than Claudius's, right, right. because then she's essentially committed adultery, and she has to deal with the fact that, you know, wow, my husband was murdered, and by my new husband, which is just is a lot of information. Um, there is a version of it, uh, a movie version, with uh, Patrick Stewart being Claudius, um, and then David Tennant is Hamlet, and right before, or like right at the end of the movie, um, there's a part where Gertrude is toasting to her son, to Hamlet, and she picks up the goblet that has the poison in it. And Claudius is like, don't. And in that particular version, it was so moving because you could see her face recognize, oh my gosh, this was meant for Hamlet, which means it's poison. And she purposely makes that decision to drink it. It wasn't an accident, which I've seen right. versions where she accidentally drunk, drunk it too. But in this case, she realized the whole enormity of everything and she drank it on purpose. And it was just really moving. How can you live in a world where you're married? to? So she must have figured it out by then. In my opinion, yeah. I, I According she, to that mm-hmm. version. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of uh, Machiavelli's Prince because... Um, Slightly off-topic, but mm-hmm. relevant. Machiavelli was uh, in the royal court, um, sent out to the country, 
lost his standing, um, was raising pigs or whatever it was that he was doing. He wanted to rewin favor, so he wrote The Prince. And um, The Prince was advice to uh, government leaders. And one of the things that he said was, is when you take over, um, you've got to kill every heir to the throne. Yeah. And, and that's what Claudius is doing. He's getting rid of every heir because if, you know, he, he was pretending like Hamlet was his son and he's going right. to take care of him. But but if you're the kind of person that just killed to get power, then you yeah. assume that other people would kill to get power and he can't, uh, he can't trust Hamlet. That's true. Although there's no indication that that was part of the plan until he figured out that Hamlet figured out yeah. what had happened. But if we base it just on his personality and his history, there's a good chance he was thinking about that beforehand. It's just that we as an audience don't realize it at that point or until that point. Or at least he always had it in his back pocket. If this kid ever figures this out, I'm going to have to yeah. whack him. <laughs> yeah, or if he does anything that's irritating more or less. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the father of modern political science, or however we would describe Machiavelli, yeah. mm-hmm. was giving that advice. And it probably was advice that was known. And probably advice that people were doing anyway. Yeah. Well, it comes up a lot yeah. in literature, so, yeah. Um, what else is interesting about this play? There, there's a line in here, or there's a, a little discussion in this that I think is a really f- fun part, which is about the worms. Oh, the grave the digger. Yeah, I think that's a lovely part. Uh, the, the grave digger, or the clown, is he's called sometimes is, you know, his job is to dig a grave for Ophelia, but he's digging out an old grave, which may have to do with the fact that they don't know if she can have Christian burial or not. Um, and so he's uh, bantering with Hamlet about this and the fact that the the worms eat the body of the dead and then the fish eat the worms and then the king can feast upon the fish. So by association, the king is feasting on, on dead bodies also. Well, and that the, the king will end Eventually up being the food for beggars. <laughs> right, right. It, exactly. So it's both directions. Both directions. Yeah. That um, ultimately we, um, we become fertilizer or food. Yeah. yeah, which is something I think you can't say that directly to the king, but because it's in wordplay, um, and he wasn't talking directly to the king anyway at that point, but uh, it was in wordplay and he was just kind of making a funny observation. And so you can get away with saying things like that. So a lot is made of of Hamlet feigning madness. And and then some scholars, I think, think that at some point he actually really loses his mind for at least a portion of the play. Or or at the very least, he becomes um, so riveted so fascinated by the idea of of revenge that he's not he's not thinking clearly and he's not really just going through the motions of pretending and maybe he's just a great actor but but there's um there's an interesting part of his character I think that I'd like to get your insight on which is that we we hear him talk a lot he he seems like he is constantly to be or not to be. He's constantly weighing mm-hmm. life and death. He's con- He seems almost um, paralyzed 
you know, because if he was, he he becomes fairly early on convinced that this is the ghost of his father. Yeah. He should avenge his father. Well, just take the sword while he's asleep and chop his head off, right? And and I think there are people, Laertes, maybe uh, these are men of action who would would do that. Instead, Hamlet, and and of course. No, it, part of it's a plot contrivance because that would be a fifteen-minute play. <laughs> Otherwise, instead of two and a half hours, but but part of his character, part of his makeup, seems to be this constant weighing yeah. of of things, and and of course, it's some of Shakespeare's most beautiful and and you know haunting writing. But ultimately, it makes him a, a character that's inside himself all the time, inside his head. We we hear that a lot. Um, and and we hear his thoughts in a way that that maybe in a movie we might hear as a voiceover almost right. you know it, it we we get inside this character but he seems almost stymied into inaction by uh, by that and i've i've always wondered people that lead lives of the mind mm. are you know, it, they're really interesting to talk to, but ultimately mm-hmm. nothing happens, or ultimately <laughs> you don't get anything done. Uh, I, and and there, there's funny. probably there's probably something to do with higher education here. Something oh, that's I'm what to I make. thought but, out of that. But, <laughs> but I guess I guess what I'm saying is there's I'm I'm always fascinated every time I see this play by how much we hear of him, but how little he actually does and then and then when the action happens boy it really happens in a, a flurry in a in a burst yeah, yeah but but really the whole play is is him interacting but really even less of that just thinking about the these tragic events that have uh, led up to him and then weighing life versus death weighing committing suicide versus being alive weighing yeah. all those things and i've i've to me to me, that is one of the things that makes Hamlet such an interesting character and maybe so enduring uh, is because we really get in his mind in a way that we maybe don't with other Shakespeare characters. Yeah, I think that's true because we see a lot of plays where somebody needs to be avenged and they go out and avenge them right. and that's the end of the whole thing. But yeah, in this one, he starts out melancholy before any, well, obviously he lost his father, but it lingers longer than I think it does for most people and that gets mentioned um, but then he shied away from it. He really didn't want to have to kill kill anybody. Um, and I think that's one reason that his father's ghost made him swear, because he probably knew he wasn't really had a strong enough will to just do it because he wanted to do it. And then he hems and haws about it for a good portion of the play where he's not sure if he should do it, um, if, you know, it would be easier if he was just dead if he's so unhappy. Um, but of course, if you, we, what is it exactly? Um, but when he did the, what dreams may come. So to sleep, perchance to dream, either is the rub for that sleep of death. What dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life for who would bear the whips and the scorns of time for oppressors wrong. The proud man's cost, cost, sorry, contumely. The pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office and the spurns, the patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin, saying he could just kill himself, uh, who would fartles bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have, 
then fly to others that we know not of. So if it were simple for him, if anything were simple for him, he would just kill himself. That would solve the problem. Right. Um, he wouldn't have to kill his uncle. He wouldn't have to deal with his mother um, or any of that. But the, because his father, right at the beginning, makes him swear to do this, this vengeance, but also the fact that he's saying, I'm also a coward, um, which, you know, that's a different debate, whether it's cowardly or not to, to commit suicide. But from his own point of view, he's too cowardly to do that. And he really does feel too cowardly even to kill his uncle. Um, but you mentioned a second ago, whether he was feigning madness or he became mad. And I don't know that the fact, I don't know the answer to that. I, I believe that he absolutely feigns it, at least at the beginning. I'm, I think he gets really caught up in the revenge more than feigning madness, or not feigning madness, becoming mad. And I think it's only with the death of Ophelia he realized how far he really took it, how much the effect of his actions um, affected other people, even people he loved, because he clearly loved Ophelia. And then when she was dead, he was like, oh, wow, I loved her so much. And I think in his mind he's thinking, I should have been paying more attention to what I was doing to her. But I was so busy, and this is not in the words of the play, this is me. Um, I was so busy getting revenge for my father that I did not realize that I had destroyed her. You know, the, the, the question about uh, that you're talking, that the two of you are talking about, Joy and Steve, and, and um, why is it taking Hamlet so long to figure out to do what he's supposed to do, and is he a coward or not, or whatever. I, I, so the, what's great about Hamlet is, is that any opinion has been stated by some expert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because so many people have talked about it. So I don't need to say that this is true, but it, I'm inclined to believe that this play has nothing to do with revenge. It has everything to do with good government, bad government. Because if it was about revenge, he could have just taken revenge. And, but we, and but also we, human. But we drag this out right. so long so that we can talk about human nature, the nature yep. of governance, and... Um, does the rule of law apply to the leaders? Um, and, and we have this horribly corrupt um, government where they're turning friends against friends, uh, mm-hmm. getting friends to spy against friends, yep. uh, manipulating their own family members like Ophelia to, to play in their plot or to take advantage of them. And it's um, this is one of the reasons why the play is so... Um, prominent among plays is that it, it's kind of a play for all times yeah. and that this is what we need to be careful of. And, um, well, and, and you can see yourself in Hamlet as he weighs those things. If you were presented with the same or similar choices, right. you can see that, you know, on the one hand this, on the other hand this, and I think everybody goes through that process. It's It's just that he does it so much and so beautifully in, in mm-hmm. such, you know, as you read that again, I'm just, I'm just still astonished. Bear Bodkin, I, there's the rub. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's in just those 10 lines you read, there are things that we say all the time. Yeah. And, and it's just, it, it's indicative of, of, of the beauty of Shakespeare's writing and the impact that he's had on the English language. But, but also I think everybody can see themselves in that, um, inability to make that decision and in, in inability to make hard decisions. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to envision the fact, you know, the idea of 
like for us to say, oh, what would I do if a ghost came and told me, you know, if a family member came and told me that I needed to do this or anybody else? I mean, it could be an angel or whatever. What do I do about that when it's really against my nature to do so? Um, so, yeah, I think that's it's one of the main reasons that it does resonate with people because he struggles so much and so openly uh, about that decision of what to do about his own life, about Claudius's life. Um, and then he's starting to lose trust in other people because of the, these things that have happened. Um, he's losing trust in his mother, even though his mother didn't mean to do anything wrong, but from his point of view, um, obviously she did do that by marrying so quickly. Um, and if you feel like you can't even trust your own mother, yeah, that, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> that would shake yourself. Shake well, yeah, your, and that's again while he was attacking Ophelia, he essentially, yeah. well, okay, essentially said, if my mother, and again, these are not the words of the play, but if I can't trust my mother, then all women must be corrupt, and I right. just need to stay away from them, and they don't—they're all evil, you know. Which is a huge jump, but he's a very emotional man, and so everything that he does is this huge emotional. Um, decision and emotional toll that it takes on him. Get thee to a nunnery. Yeah. He thought it would be better for her to live a chaste life rather than lie to, lie to somebody, which we know that she didn't actually do. But at that point, I, I actually think, because that, that was the part that threw me about, was he really being mad or not? Why would he hurt Ophelia? But I think he was so hurt by his mother at that point that he took some of that out on her. So I don't think all of it was hey, I'm going to plan on hurting Ophelia. I think he was hurt and confused and angry, and he took some of it out on her. Yeah, there, there are some versions of the play, and some experts I've heard opine that that they've actually already been intimate, Hamlet and Ophelia, and that perhaps she's even carrying a child, and that this has led her to the you know, fateful decision to kill herself, uh, essentially. And and there's no indication in the text right. of any of that. But um, as you said, President, every expert, every expert with a PhD uh, has weighed in on mm-hmm. this play. And, um, and there are some that have said, yeah, he's, he's mean to her. And I guess if she felt like she had no control over her lives and she had a, a brother and a father that were really uh, controlling, and then the one man that she loved all of a sudden turned on her. Maybe that would make her so despondent. But but perhaps there were also these other things that are not in the play, uh, well, or sure. they're not obvious in the play. That and that, maybe something's going on that right we can't tell you. That you yeah, <laughs> so you have to You're come see have the to other come watch it. the play. That's right. The, the new improved Ophelia. That's right. So we have a friend who lives in Washington, D.C., taught um, Shakespeare at Georgetown University and served as a board member of the Shakespeare Theater there. His wife served uh, on a Shakespeare board in another community and has a daughter serving in another one. So there's three. And uh, he comes out to Cedar City every summer with his family to watch um, plays here. What he would say is, um, if he was here, is that this is the best theater because you watch the play in the evening and then the next morning you get to attend a seminar. We, 
we have a pre-play orientation presentation for those that choose, then the play, then the next morning um, you can sit and talk with an expert and others who watched the play the night before and discuss it. It, is, it, it makes it a complete interesting package yeah. where that if you watch a play um, in a big city and um, at a you know some theater well, even at the globe just, they don't you do just that go at the home globe. yeah that's right yeah. you just go home it's over you, you just go home you don't have a chance to really talk it through this is this is the best place to watch that's a have. very cool part of what we do here. yeah it is Ophelia is I think the most sympathetic character in the play mm-hmm. um, because she's manipulated by her father by the king um, whatever happens with her and Hamlet. Um, she falls in love with Hammett, and her dad and her brother remind her that she's a lower class than Hamlet, that she should get away from him. And well, because they essentially think that Hamlet's playing with her. Right. Um, but even, you know, But L- even Lear- that, a, the daughter of a servant of um, the king is mm-hmm. not, it doesn't go anywhere if you fall in love with the king. Son. Yeah, although Polonius does apologize for that later when he reads the letter. He's like, oh, okay, I think he yeah. actually meant it. I didn't realize. Yeah. But but at the very first part where Ophelia comes in, Laertes lecturing her, then Polonius lectures her and <laughs> makes her show him the letter, you know, which I, the privacy thing is just not, it's not an option for her. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, there's there's this whole background we don't know about, about <laughs> where, you know, I, I realized that women had, very few rights in that time period, but at the same time, maybe her family was worse than most families. You don't know that part of it either. Again, right. we don't know her background. Um, but yeah, so there's just a lot of uh, other people telling her who she is and what she needs to do. Yeah, I, I think that is why she's so sympathetic is because these wheels are set in motion and she's really powerless to more or less to stop. Any of it. It's it's why Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is funny too. These are these two <laughs> small Bit characters, and and now it's it's Hamlet told from their point of view, and they're kind of watching the whole thing unfold and saying, "What the heck is going on?" Yeah, um, and you know it's kind of this absurdist comedy thing between these two goofy friends of Hamlet's, and, uh, uh, and and so there are those characters to whom the play happens, you know, and and yeah. it, it, that's kind of what I, I I think about Ophelia this this whole thing is just happening to her and it there's nothing yeah. she can do about yeah, it yeah in a way the whole play happened to everybody yeah right there's really nobody I think that actually has control over anything yeah. because even Hamlet gets his revenge but he died right. so that didn't go over as well as he was hoping well that that was <laughs> the whole that was the whole thing about that Oedipus and the you know the Greek fate versus uh, yeah. was versus free choice was does anybody in this play really have any choice? If your father came to you and said, "Swear an oath, you got to revenge," you know, you got to avenge my death. Well, that feels like the gods to me. It feels like that's taking, you know, yeah. taking your free yeah. will away. Well, and and um, this this play has. Um, so what we would say is, is read this play. This is a great play to read. <laughs> it's read amazing. the play and then come watch it. But but additionally, there's a lot of other ways that somebody can be. Uh, introduced to this play, and one of them is is to watch movies like The Lion King, which yeah. is a which is the retelling of which is Hamlet. retelling of the story. Right. Of course, it's not exact, right? 
Yeah, um, but it's off. the 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 yeah. main plot is there. I saw a funny internet meme about that. That down the left hand side was all the things that happened in Hamlet, and on the right hand side, the last thing was in Hamlet, everybody dies. In Lion King, Elton John sings a song. That's Disney. What do you want? (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, all the characters um, are there. The ending is a little different. Yeah. Not everyone dies in Lion King. It's a Disney movie, so it has to have a happy ending. That's right. Yeah. But for people who are intimidated by the language, and I I get that, it it gets easier, for one thing. But there are different ways... um, to read it, there's No Fear Shakespeare, and they have a website even where you can read the play and modern interpretation of it. So if you don't know what some of the language means, cool. which there's no reason why you would know that. So, you know, at the time, that was the language they spoke. But we don't speak early modern English anymore, except for in that circumstance. Um, but there are ways to learn the language. But even if you don't get everything, the more you go to these plays, the more you start to understand. So a lot of it's just exposing yourself to it and i know people are worried about sometimes people are worried about feeling stupid um not being able to keep up and that's okay if you if you don't you can always watch it again um or again with uh reading the book where you can slow down and look at it um one of the things that i teach my 1010s um is i always teach them one of the plays from whatever shakespeare um utah shakespeare festival is doing and we do the graphic novel of it so they have the visual and the words which i think is a really good way to learn shakespeare because you have context for the words but you can also do it at your own pace where with the play you just want to tell the actors hang on i'm not there yet (laughs) i'm still trying to figure out what you said and and reading the book the 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 struggle for me with the book and i was glad i i had what i thought was a really great annotated version of it that just had a running glossary yeah but i just thought to myself holy mackerel it's so much easier when you add the action oh, to yeah. this, yeah. it's so much easier because I, I just would think, okay, I got about six words <laughs> out of that previous paragraph and they were all the and, and I, the rest. So well, I'm checking the glossary. I'm going to the bottom of the page yeah, every It's practice, line, but these plays were never meant times. to be read. That was not the intention. Yeah, they were just, intended to be watched by a modern audience of their time, right. you know, that would understand it. It was not this haughty thing just for kings and queens, which, you know, I think there's a misinterpretation that some people think that that's what Shakespeare was about, but it wasn't. He had um, the groundlings. Uh, I teach uh, study abroad with Jeff Brannon in London two weeks every May, and we take them to Shakespeare's plays, and we have the students be groundlings. So they stand up, right? And then some of them are leaning straight against the play. That was the common people. He made sure that they could afford to go. Hmm. They understood the jokes or, or even, you know, when it wasn't a joke, obviously, there's not a lot of jokes in Hamlets. There are some. Um, but he made sure that that was accessible to everybody. That was super important to Shakespeare's time. Yeah, and I and uh, there are a lot of editions of Shakespeare. The one that I read was Folger's Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and I read it on my Kindle. Oh, yeah. Which which made it very uh, enjoyable because I'd, I'd hit something like um, brevity is the soul of wit. And I think, okay, what does that exactly mean? <laughs> and uh, I click on it and it says to me, um, a wise speech, a few words carry the central meaning. It has nothing to do with wit. Yeah, not the, the way we think, think of, of wit. wit. It's just saying... Um, 
make your words brief and it'll be more effective. Right. Which so, is exactly why that is funny in that play because Polonius just goes on and on and on about everything, <laughs> but he says that. So he knows he knows the rules, he just doesn't follow them. Yeah. But constantly through here um, it was fun to to click on a word and get the definition yeah. and it, the the commonly used at that time definition. It kind of slowed me down because yeah. I found it fun to Well, it's so much easier than it used to be that way. So you either had a version that had a glossary or annotations on the side, or you just, you know, had to kind of force your way through it. Uh, And now there's all kinds of ways to learn Shakespeare. Uh, One of the reasons that I wanted to go into Shakespeare studies was because I I thought, I really want to know this. I want to know this language. I want to understand it. Um, and be able to go to the plays and get what's going on, no matter what it is. And that fascinated me. But it was harder to study it, you know, back without the internet and right. without these uh, so easier versions of the play to read. Yeah, it, like No Fear Shakespeare is one, one, a really good one because it's modern wording on one side and the actual wording on the other side. And it was kind of this thing like, well, if you can't figure it out, you shouldn't be reading Shakespeare, which is not really true. That wasn't Shakespeare's intent. No, no definitely not. not. Well, it's also funny because I, I have heard before, and I think I thought this when I was a kid, you know, that Shakespeare would never make a dirty joke or whatever, which is all he does. Is, <laughs> yeah, you know, like he wasn't body. He was just very, very body. And if he was doing things today, we don't think about that very often. But if he was doing things today, they'd probably be rated R. There would probably be nudity. There probably would be a lot of language in it. Well, there is a lot of language in it. Well, there is. We just we, don't get the we language. We don't get it. Yeah. yeah, I actually think Shakespeare <laughs> wouldn't be taught in high school if the students understood what they were reading. But since they don't, we don't have to worry about that. But in, yeah. if it was put in modern terms, it might be a little iffy. There's a lot of phrases that we that just go over our heads because we don't understand them. Yeah. But this is the argument I have with colleagues all the time in, in, in classical music. In some cases, this this was meant to be a special thing that was meant only for a special group of people. But 95% of these people were just trying to write hits. Mozart was trying to write a hit. And he wanted it to be accessible for everyone. You know, by the end of his life, he'd lost most of his jobs. Right. Kind of drunk his way through, um, you know, the the really good jobs in Europe at the time and was essentially writing operas on spec for whoever would produce them. And he, you know, these things had to be hits so that he could... Feed Costanza and the kids, you right. know? and uh, so it was uh, to to imagine that. Well, if you can't understand, no, these were people working with the language of the time. These were people working with the music of their time, trying to write popular entertainment. It's just it's just the fact that they happen to be towering intellects of all time that that the stuff continues to be amazing, and it, it amazes at the very most elite level, but also. Who doesn't? Who can't whistle a Mozart theme? Every, you know, every, mm-hmm. you know, it appeals, and that's what he was. That's what that's what he was trying to do. Is what Shakespeare was trying to do. He's right, trying to write hits. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare was really successful. There's this this myth that if you're a playwright or in the arts, 
which is still a myth that you can't make a decent living. Right. But he owned part of the globe. He he was really pretty well off. He did really well. He had the favor of Queen Elizabeth and then James I. Uh, and there's always references to both of them in just about every place. So you could look at Gertrude as the aging Elizabeth. Now, of course, he would never say that outright because that would have made her unhappy. But he always had veiled references to things that were going on in society this way he could deny it if <laughs> if the king or queen were angry with him and said oh, i can't believe you said that about me oh that wasn't about you <laughs> that was just this other thing that i made up but yeah so he definitely was really successful at his time too it wasn't just now yeah and he takes liberties with the facts when he in his historical place he sure. takes a lot of liberties it's times haven't changed much no, we think of Richard III and the deformity supposedly that he had and, and that most of us grew up watching him always deformed. And then they found his skeleton a few years ago. He was not nearly that deformed. He wasn't, um, you know, completely crippled at all. But there was this idea of that. And I think it was more symbolic than physical, but it became a physical attribute as time went by. Well, everybody should come see the play. And everybody should um, read it and think about what it means. And then um, because Cedar City is a destination um, for the Utah Shakespeare Festival, most of those that come to see the play will stay overnight, mm -hmm. um, spend a little bit of time. You're, make sure that um, if any of our listeners are coming to see Sh uh, Hamlet this summer, again, it opens on July 5th. Um, stay overnight and then come the next morning um, and listen to the seminar. Not listen to the seminar, but participate in the seminar. Mm -hmm. Discussion about the play. That That's what makes it so much fun. And then call you or me and we can go to lunch. And we'll give them a tour of our palatial exactly. podcast studios. <laughs> I, had, I had the opportunity to sit in on some of the tryouts and readings of this play. In really? anticipation of the summer, and to watch these professional actors uh, go through some of the lines, and then to have our artistic director Brian Vaughn say, "Would you take a slightly different approach to this?" And instantly, mm -hmm. they were a different person reading the same lines. And I thought, "Wow, the magic of live theater." That's true. And and Shakespeare in general, there have been plays I've watched dozens of times and I'm like, wow, I don't even remember that part because it was portrayed so differently. Yeah. It was de-emphasized. Mm -hmm. So President, our third book for the summer is uh, Tao Te Ching, the, the kind of founding book of Taoism, right? Yeah. And you were telling me earlier when we were having a discussion about the fact that you were actually reading a couple of other books and here came some quotes. Yeah, so um, Tao Te Ching is uh, Bryce Christensen from our English department is going to join us to discuss that. And when I was talking to him about it, uh, he mentioned uh, that it is a uh, fairly short book, so it doesn't take a long time to read it, but it does take a lifetime to think about it. So this isn't a hard read. But what's so what's been so interesting is is that the book has never been really present in my mind, uh, thinking about it. But I read it quite a bit. And um, ever since we decided that this book was going to be part of our 
Summer Book Club, I have read quotes from it in two other All of a sudden you see it every year, books. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, here's one. This is a book called Atomic Habits. That's a, a hot best-selling book, Atomic yeah. Habits, yeah. Men are born soft and subtle, supple. Dead, they are stiff and hard. Plants are born tender and pliant. Dead, they are brittle and dry. Thus, whoever is stiff and inflexible is the disciple of death. Whoever is soft and yielding is the disciple of life. The hard and stiff will be broken. The soft and supple will be. The soft and supple will prevail. But this was in a book about how to form great habits. Um, and uh, the idea that um, we don't want our habits to become so hard, good or bad, that we become a disciple of death because dead things are not at all flexible. That's right. Living things. That's how we know they're dead. That's how they we know snap they're dead. in half. Living yep. things. So I'm super excited. I haven't started reading this yet. I don't know if you have. Nope. Um, Steve, I haven't started reading, but I'm really excited to read uh, this book. Again, it's a fairly quick read with a lot of thoughts. It just is interesting thought after interesting thought after interesting thought from a very old text, far older than Shakespeare. Right. Probably easier to read than Shakespeare. Well. The quotes that I've read have all been easier to understand. But but, but laden life, with meaning. Yeah. Laden with meaning and a <laughs> lifetime to think about it. Yeah. Um, cool. That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyeth, president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've enjoyed our conversation today with Joyce Tarantino from our English faculty, and we've been discussing Hamlet, which is not only the world's greatest play, but also going to be part of the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Beginning July 5th, we invite you to Cedar City to come and see a very special version of that play. We invite you to finish reading this play with us if you haven't. And uh, as always, we appreciate you continuing to be our faithful listeners. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.